Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of The Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Eric Edelman, who is a distinguished fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, has had many elevated titles in his career, including ambassador and various other things. He also teaches at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins. And most important of all of his titles, he is the co-host of our Bulwark sister podcast, Shield of the Republic which I've praised before on this podcast and is not to be missed. So thank you one and all. And I'm going to begin with Eric Edelman because we are now in, what is it? Is it week six or seven of this war? And it is now clear that the Russians are actually withdrawing and kind of signaling that they were defeated out in their attempt to take Kiev. And of course, we have the news that there are atrocities being committed in this war, grotesque stories coming out of the areas where the Russians are withdrawing from. But the other things about this war are less clear. What seemed to be complete NATO unity in the beginning days is now beginning to unravel a little bit. So I was amused seeing a... um, story in the New York Times about the NATO foreign ministers meeting and the the fissures that are beginning to become visible. And there was this sentence, quote, there is a general agreement that Russia is no longer a strategic partner of the alliance. (laughs) So Eric, I'd ask you to take it from there and tell us what you think about this. Is NATO unraveling or are these fissures very serious? And tell us how you think the struggle is going. Who's doing well and who isn't in responding to this crisis? Well, thanks, Mona, and thanks for having me back. It's great to be with you and all of our colleagues here. I beg to differ. Look, you know, NATO in some sense has been unraveling since the ink was drying on the Washington Treaty in 1949. Mm -hmm. And the alliance has been through multiple crises. I think it is a tribute to some of the things the Biden administration has done better in this crisis that you've had NATO unity and also transatlantic unity, I would stress, because the EU has been very important on the sanctions front. It does remind me, as you point out, the emerging differences among NATO members that my former boss, George Schultz, used to say that alliance management is like gardening. It requires sort of constant tending. And in that sense, I do think Secretary Blinken deserves particularly high marks for kind of his peripatetic diplomacy in all of this. He's really been making the rounds and doing a lot to hold things together. But there have been differences about Russia inside the alliance for a number of years, certainly since 2014 and the annexation of Crimea and invasion of the Donbass. Between the so-called frontline states, you know, the newer members of NATO who came in after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, and the original members who feel less of a threat from Russia. And so I think it's really quite you know, natural that you would see these differences. But I think the Russians, at least for the moment, have helped here because their barbaric behavior has been so transparent that I think it has made it a little bit easier to hold the alliance together. Now, over time, as sanctions begin to bite and national governments begin to you know, wilt under the public pressure that comes when sanctions are imposing too many costs on the sanctioners, that's going to be a real test. On the battlefield, as you said, I think it's fair to say the first phase of this war is over and that Russia was defeated in it. Now, that's not to say that the war is over itself and that Russia can't still make gains. They're clearly taking the forces out of northern Ukraine that were badly mauled by the Ukrainians. An enormous number of their battle tactical groups were severely damaged, both in personnel and equipment. They're both licking their wounds and trying to reset those units and appear to be concentrating now on the Donbass and on 
perhaps encircling the Ukrainian forces there, cutting them off, and trying to then claim the Donbass as Russian. And that seems to me to be where we see things on the battlefield. Are we doing enough to get weapons to Ukraine? That seems to be in doubt. Well, look, I mean, we have supplied, I think, $2.4 in military assistance to Ukraine, and I think about 1.7 of that has come since February 24th. I mean, now that's announced assistance. You know, the amount of time it takes to get out to the battlefield is another question. And so, for instance, the switchblade loitering munitions that we've provided, at least as far as I can tell, haven't quite made it to the battlefield yet. At the NATO ministerial, the Ukrainian foreign minister, Minister Kuleba, said, I have three requests, weapons, weapons, and weapons. And I think that that's right. My preference would be for the Biden administration to do more and to be doing it faster. Okay. And one other thing about the um, international reaction, you were ambassador to Turkey at one time. How would you rate, you know, the countries, the major countries of the world in terms of their response? How are the Turks responding to this? The Chinese, India, and China, of course, these are all nations that have expressed varying amounts of friendship for Russia. What's been their reaction? Well, the Turks have been put in a very awkward position because they have good relations with both Ukraine and Russia. They're, of course, a major consumer of uh, Russian military goods, having purchased the Russian S-400 air and missile defense system, which was the occasion for them being kicked out of the F-35 program by the United States. But they also are a major provider of the TB-2 Bayraktar drone, which has been one of the most effective weapons that the Ukrainians have wielded against Russia. So they've got equities on both sides of the equation. And like Israel and other countries that have found themselves in this position, They've tried to use that to offer their good offices as mediators. I don't really think they're doing much mediation in the sense that we would understand it as U.S. mediating, for instance, in the Arab-Israeli dispute. It's more offering a neutral venue for negotiations to take place. And those negotiations have now been sort of adjourned, at least for a while, while people wrap their heads around what's emerging from Bucha and other locations evacuated by the Russians. Chinese are, I think their major preoccupation is to do no harm. They don't want to be associated with what the Russians are doing, but they still have an alliance with Russia that during the Olympics before Russia invaded Ukraine, Xi Jinping said had no limits. So they're, I think, trying to walk a bit of a tightrope as well. India, which has a long historic relationship and particularly an arms supply relationship with the Soviet Union and Russia, similarly, I think is trying to kind of walk this line of neutrality. However, the other country to which I was accredited as ambassador, Mona, which you didn't mention, was Finland. And there, what's happening is very interesting because when I was ambassador there, perhaps 20, maybe maximum 25% of Finns expressed a desire to join NATO. In polling since February 24th, that number has grown over 50% and now is in the low 60s. And Finland is going through a very intense debate. And I believe by June, they apply for NATO membership. And if I had to bet, I would bet they will. Interesting. Yeah. All right. I'm going to turn next to Linda Chavez. Linda, early in the war, there was a lot of concern with so-called escalation. I think we all agreed that one of Biden's less astute moves was failing to agree to the transfer of the MiG jets on the grounds that we would be the ones escalating. But there was also a lot of talk that this was a very dangerous situation and even an expectation that Putin, having committed so many of his forces to this battle and having created this crisis, would not back down in the face of resistance, but would escalate. And there was a lot of worry about his use of weapons of mass destruction, either nuclear or chemical weapons was the big fear. That didn't happen. Does that suggest to you that some of that was saber rattling on Putin's part and that it was wise to um, not overreact to it? Well, uh, the World Health Organization just this week has again warned 
that chemical weapons could be used. So I don't think we've totally eliminated the possibility of weapons of mass destruction. We have seen the Russians using weapons that are not generally approved for use in wartime, certainly against civilian populations. We have the cluster bombs that have been used. We have other hypersonic missiles. We have a number of things that Russia has already done. I do think that Putin may believe that there is an unstated red line and that if he uses a weapon of mass destruction, uh, certainly if he were to use a tactical nuclear weapon, for example, that it would pull NATO or the United States or some of the NATO countries into the conflict. However, I think while it's good that the Russian troops have uh, moved out of the western part of the country, there you know, is still this horrible battle going on in the Donbass region. And they didn't move out of the western part of the country before they committed what were absolutely atrocious uh, war crimes and attacks against civilians, summary execution of civilians. Um, I mean, there were stories in the Washington Post this week about beheadings of people around the Kiev area uh, in Bucha and and uh, one of the other suburbs. You know, bodies set on fire. It was really quite horrific. And I still believe, Mona, that so long as we have taken off the table the possibility that at some point we have to do something militarily, uh, that Putin is just going to continue with this onslaught. Uh, You know, he may be satisfied for the moment uh, with being able to have this uh, land bridge uh, and to secure uh, his western flank of Russia on Ukraine's eastern flank. But, you know, how long will that last? And I'm worried, yes, we're continuing to provide weapons, but so far a lot of the weapons that we've been providing have been uh, Soviet-era weapons, in part because that's what the Ukrainians know how to use. But at some point we're going to run out of those. Uh, And then we are absolutely going to have to train the Ukrainians in the use of uh, our more modern weapons and I think Putin's going to see that as the U.S. or, or NATO being uh, directly uh, in conflict with Russia. So I still remain skeptical that we are going to get through this war without more direct involvement of the United States and NATO. Bill Galston, there was a report uh, in the last day or so that the United States, working behind the scenes, had removed malware from computers all around the world that thwarted Russian cyber attacks. And so it's worth noting that just because when bad things don't happen, the administrations that are responsible for preventing a bad thing from happening rarely get credit for it. So it's worth giving a, a hat tip to the administration for that. But I would like you to address something else, which is early on in our discussions about this, you had talked about the need for more defense spending. The Biden administration has come out with a defense budget proposal that while it gives a nominal increase, the increase that they're proposing is not larger than the rate of inflation. So it would actually not amount to much of an increase, if any. Are you satisfied with that? I am completely dissatisfied with that, Mona, and I believe that sentiment is widely shared, including by many Democrats. And so I expect a repetition of what happened in the prior fiscal year budget negotiations when, uh, on a bipartisan basis, about $30 billion was added to the Biden request. Uh, But I'll go farther than that. I think we've reached a crucial historical juncture where we have to decide what we're trying to do in the next generation. I believe, as I've said many times, that the United States has gone from two enemies on two fronts during World War II to one enemy on one front during the Cold War to zero enemies during the post-Cold War. And now in the post-post-Cold War, we're back to two enemies on two fronts of the situation we faced during World War II And we're either going to step up to our responsibilities on both of those fronts or not. And if we're going to, 
we're going to have to talk about significantly higher levels of defense spending. Some defense-minded Democrats are talking about ramping up over the next couple of years to about 5% of GDP versus a little bit more than three right now. While I have the floor, let me just make a few other points. Uh, First of all, on the atrocity front, as you may have read, German intelligence has picked up Russian conversations about the mistreatment and even slaughter of innocent civilians as they withdrew from the area around Kiev. And it was clear that this was not something completely spontaneous, but that at various levels of the Russian military, there was awareness of what was going on. And if there's evidence that anybody in charge, if there was anybody in charge, tried to stop it, that evidence has not yet emerged. Uh, Secondly, my information is that we have already begun to train Ukrainians on the use of more advanced weapons. Uh, And some of those Ukrainians, at least a few of them, are already on U.S. soil. Third, I believe, and I think I'm not the only one who believes, that this war is now entering a crucial phase. If over the next three to six weeks, the Ukrainians can prevent the Russians from making serious progress in the Donbass and can prevent their troops that are now defending eastern Ukraine from being surrounded in a pincers movement from the north and from the south, then at that point, the Russians really will have been defeated not in the sense that they haven't seized Ukrainian territory, but that both of their larger war aims, both Plan A and Plan B, will have been halted. Uh, And at that point, a very interesting and difficult period will begin, a period in which the United States and the Western Alliance are going to have to ask themselves, what are the aims of this war? Wars are defined by their aims. And it was a very big deal during World War II when the Allies agreed that unconditional surrender was the war aim, and that drove a lot of what happened subsequently. What do we really want to come out of this conflict? And I think we have kicked that can down the road, but we won't be able to do so indefinitely. All right. Thank you for that. And, um, After a short break, I would like to get some responses to that very important question. How do you choose which internet service provider to use? The sad thing is most of us have very little choice because ISPs operate like monopolies in the regions they serve. They use this monopoly power to take advantage of consumers. Data caps, streaming throttles, the list goes on. But worst of all, Many ISPs log your internet activity and sell that data to other big tech companies or advertisers. To prevent ISPs from seeing my internet activity, I protect all of my devices with ExpressVPN. So what is ExpressVPN? It's a simple app for your computer or smartphone that encrypts all your network data and tunnels it through a secure VPN server so that your ISP cannot see your activity. Just think about how much of your life is on the internet. It's true for all of us. Sadly, the list of people you've messaged, sites you've visited, and videos you've watched get tracked by tech giants who can sell your information for profit. That's the reason I recommend ExpressVPN as the best way to hide your online activity from your ISP. You just download the app, tap one button on your device, and you're protected. I have been doing a tremendous amount of remodeling of our basement after we had a terrible flood. Don't ask. And so I've been looking up furniture. I've been looking up, you know, carpets and things like that. And then every time I go to a website, I get deluged with ads for carpeting and other things that I've already purchased. And I don't want to see these repeated ads. And it is just very, very nice to have ExpressVPN because then they don't know what I'm doing and they can't target their ads at me. ExpressVPN does all of this, by the way, without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by Business Insider and The Verge. 
So stop handing over your personal data to ISPs and other tech giants who mine your activity and sell off your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me private online. Visit expressvpn.com slash beg to differ. That's expressvpn.com slash beg to differ to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash beg to differ right now to learn more. Damon, I will be coming to you, but before I do, I would just like to hear Eric Edelman on the topic of war aims. Can you give us your thoughts on the point that Bill Galston made about what the aim of the war needs to be? Uh, Well, I I was trying to think of what Bill said that I might disagree with, but I've agreed with literally everything he just said, (laughs) including and and the, as Lillian Hellman once said. And so I think Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Newland has said in congressional testimony that the U.S. objective is to defeat Putin's effort to destroy Ukraine and to seize Ukrainian territory. I think that's great as declaratory policy. It's not clear to me that that is actually the settled objective of the Biden administration, but I very much agree with it. That should be the objective. And I think it's attainable for the reasons that Bill, I think, outlined. But I think it does mean, to go back to Linda's point, that we're going to have to stop talking about the things we're not going to do, stop worrying about the things that might provoke Putin, and try and make him worry more about the things that he's doing that might provoke us. And I think it means a recurrence to the kinds of thinking we had in the Cold War about deterrence and what it took to deter, which I don't think we've had to think about very much, frankly. The administration has a new national defense strategy, which it has not published in an unclassified version yet, but which talks about integrated deterrence. But that's really a buzzword that replaces whole of government, which has been a mantra for the last 20 years. And I don't think it really advances very far the discussion of what we need to do to deter. But some of it has to come from increases in the defense budget, as Bill was saying. And I agree with him. It should be somewhere around 5%. I co-chaired a commission Congress appointed four years ago to examine the Trump administration's defense strategy. And we concluded, and it was a bipartisan commission, including the current deputy secretary of defense, Kath Hicks, that we needed to spend 3 to 5% real growth per year above what the budget was at the time in order to execute the Trump strategy. But the circumstance we find ourselves in now, as Bill pointed out, is perhaps even more demanding. And one of the things we pointed out in that report was that if we had to face a conflict on two fronts from two near peers, both Russia and China, that we would be sore put to be able to defeat one and deter the other. So I think that means complete funding for nuclear modernization, but also increases to allow us to maintain a stable balance both in Europe and in the Far East and the Indo-Pacific, and unfortunately in the Middle East, which a lot of people would like to just withdraw from and allow to you know, find its own kind of level. But without the United States framing things, I think it will never be stable there or even close to stable there as well. Okay, thank you. Damon, this war has sort of clarified lines of who stands for what in Europe. There are a number of um, authoritarian leaders, and we're going to talk about one in particular in our next segment, who have been either implicitly or explicitly allied with Putin, some of whom are scurrying for the tall grass at this point, others are doubling down. But Here at home, also, we are seeing divisions. Contrary to popular wisdom, we were not united during the Cold War, actually. We had a lot of internal divisions about the nature of that war and whose side we should be on in many instances. And something similar is happening now, except the the roles are kind of reversed. It is now the Republicans, or some portion of them, who are against a sort of muscular and robust American response to authoritarianism. So on Tuesday, 63 House Republicans voted against 
a symbolic resolution that simply declared the, quote, unequivocal support for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization as an alliance founded on democratic principles, unquote. So we've had other votes, you know, where, for example, there was a vote yesterday that the House passed calling upon the Biden administration to keep track of war crimes or atrocities being committed in Ukraine. That was opposed by seven members of the GOP. So give me a sense of how you think this plays out in terms of domestic politics. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange spectacle to be living through. Frankly, I mean, I as as you know, you and uh, regular listeners of the podcast know uh, when it came to you know over the last uh, couple of years, the kind of tail end of the foreign policy focus on the war on terror and related policies connected to that, I was often a critic. And so, you know, you might predict like, oh, Damon will be kind of with the 60 or so House members who voted against the NATO thing. But like nothing could be further from the truth because we are in a new world right now. It's one that plenty of people and myself included talked about as coming a kind of multipolar challenge to uh, the West with American leadership with Russia and especially China rising and people, uh, other countries and regions attempting to assert themselves against the liberal international order. And that's a different kind of reality. And it's one that calls for, you know, just to quickly loop back to Bill's point about defense spending. I mean, I actually, if you can believe it, uh, I actually think 5% of GDP is, is probably itself too low. I mean, in the Reagan reactivation of the Cold War in the 80s, we were above 6% of GDP toward military spending. And we're now uh, facing a war. Which, can I interject real quick? Yeah. Which started under Jimmy Carter. It um, did. Yeah. Uh, many of the policies of Reagan yes. started under Carter, and including yes. he's the one who appointed Volcker to the Fed. So it, it, yes. there's a lot of continuity there that's uh, interesting for uh, historians to debate. But it's definitely the case that we're in a situation where a lot of things that we've come to take for granted ever since the end of World War II are now kind of up for grabs in a new way that require a very robust response. It's one thing to see a threat from international terrorism, which was certainly real and still remains real in different parts of the world. But the challenge of a global state with a large military, some of them with nuclear weapons, uh, especially these two rivals, is a whole order of magnitude more dangerous. A state can do a lot of damage in a way that a kind of stateless group of terrorists can. And so we need to respond to this. Now, to your original question about the response from kind of the, you could say, the anti-war faction, I mean, I really think these folks, especially the Republicans, are, are making a massive mistake here. Now, whether they'll pay a political price, we will see. But it really does seem crazy to me that there are dozens of members of the House who are opposing a vote, a simple non-binding statement of solidarity with NATO, an alliance that we created, and that is on the front lines now of this kind of challenge that requires, you know, we're, we're doing it already, but we have to do a lot more of it. We need to be moving heavy weaponry to the eastern flank of NATO immediately. And this is no small lift, and it is no small problem. And so it it is especially galling the spectacle of seeing, uh, you know, dozens of Republican office holders staking out this position that through the Cold War uh, was often staked out by a kind of anti-American left. And so now you have one of the most prominent metaphors of our moment is kind of horseshoe politics, the idea that you describe the political alignment of people, not so much as a spectrum from left to right, but as a horseshoe where centrist of the center left and center right are together and then those on the extremes are actually overlapping and agreeing with each other and we see examples of it everywhere and we had that one particularly appalling example of it in congress just this week 
Right, and you mentioned there's a new magazine that brings them together. So. Yes, Compact. <laughs> they had a great statement a, a week ago, great, uh, with irony, uh, where people yes. like Sora Amari and Glenn right. Greenwald signing off together. You know, of course, everything in that statement was addressed to the United States, like nothing about Russia. Oh, well, that's completely familiar from the way the left handled the Cold War. Right, yes. America Um, with a K. Yes, and they managed to overlook all of the crimes and and so forth of the other side. Right. I'll just say that a colleague of mine quipped that it is convenient that the worst people in the world keep making lists of themselves. (laughs) 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 But one member of Congress who voted against expressing support for NATO as an alliance founded on democratic principles explained to the Washington Post that he was concerned about certain requirements that were going to be passed that were stressing that NATO was going to be focusing also on reinforcing democracy within its own ranks. And this, he thought, was uh, directed at Hungary. And so with that, we will come to our second topic in just a minute. Are you one of the millions of people who mostly invest in stocks? Because J.P. Morgan predicts returns for stock-heavy portfolios will be under 5% for the next decade. J.P. Morgan City and Morgan Stanley all agree there's one asset in particular you should be looking at, contemporary art. Why art? Because they know the contemporary arts returns have outpaced the S&P 500 for the last 25 years by a whopping 164%. Now that you know that secret, I can tell you about Masterworks. They let you add contemporary art to your portfolio at a price customized to you with no hassle. If you want to skip their wait list, go to masterworks.io and use promo code beg to differ That's masterworks.io, promo code beg to differ Before deciding to invest, carefully review important disclosures at masterworks.io slash cd. This past week saw the re-election of Viktor Orban, one of Putin's best pals, in Europe, and somebody who is a member of NATO, but whose anti-democratic rule has caused stresses for him within not just NATO, but the EU. He won this campaign based on a number of things, including fear and lies. He told the voters that a Jewish billionaire, that would be George Soros, plots to flood the country with a million Muslims, that perverts want to teach their children about sexual deviance, and that the opposition, the people who are critical of Putin, are spoiling for war with Russia. Bill Galston, I'm going to start with you on this one. This election was not really a free and fair election, was it? No, of course not. But the previous ones weren't either. And I have to say that the results were extremely disappointing. I had a chance to spend an hour with a pretty senior representative of the United Opposition about a month ago, and they believed at the time that the election was close, would remain close, and that this was the most serious challenge to Orban's continued rule uh, since it began. And as I look at the election returns and analyze them, this was actually a weaker showing for the opposition than we've seen previously. And Orban and colleagues ended up with 53% of the vote, and they will have a two-thirds majority in parliament, which means, you know, setting all the niceties aside, that they'll be able to do whatever they want. Uh, So we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that somehow the Russian invasion of Ukraine left Orban in a vulnerable situation politically. He managed the crisis very effectively and now has plenipotentiary power as far as the eye can see. What's really interesting to me is how the Russian invasion has driven a wedge between Hungary and Poland, pretty much acting in concert up to that point. The Poles' historic antipathy to Russia, I think, is now the dominant feature in Polish politics and not so in Hungary. So this does weaken the illiberal forces in the West 
even though it didn't do the damage to Mr. Orban that many of us were hoping for. Of course, that does remind you of the uh, joke that used to be told in the Polish army, or at least that's the way I heard it, about the Polish private who asks his commanding officer what he should do. This is set many decades ago, that he understood that the Russians and the Germans were both enemies, both had invaded Poland, but what should he do if both invaded simultaneously? And the commanding officer says, shoot the German first, business before pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Eric Edelman, the opposition leader got five minutes on public television during the campaign. And Orban has completely dominated the media. His friends own all of it, pretty much. He has corrupted the judiciary and uh, he has spied on journalists. And uh, yet you have Rod Dreher, a major American uh, religious writer, intellectual, saying that Orban is now the de facto leader of the West, if the West means anything. I, you know, I don't even know what to say <laughs> to respond to that. I, I mean, I saw his tweet. Um, it's ridiculous. To pick up where Bill left off, Mona, there's a lot about the Orban election result in Hungary that is, you know, worrisome and not just disappointing. And I would break it down into a couple of points. One is, Orban was the most sort of advanced of what people have called the mini Putins in Central Europe. There were others as well, authoritarian leaning, you mentioned it, politicians in Poland, but also in the Czech Republic and and Slovakia. In the wake of the invasion of Ukraine, all of them other than Orban, you know, have really sort of backed away from that. I worry that Orban's victory is, you know, going to reawaken some of that and make it seem more politically attractive to people. Moreover, if you look at the failure of the unified opposition, as Bill was saying, this is precisely the model that people in Turkey have been counting on in order to defeat Erdogan in the upcoming elections there. And I'm afraid that the Orban victory, has, it's already being greeted with jubilation by Erdogan's supporters in Turkey. And I worry that it's going to have that knock-on effect. But even before we get to the Turkish elections, on Sunday, France is having a presidential election. And I have been really unnerved by the growth of Marine Le Pen's support in the polling, both in the first round, but also potentially in a second round runoff with President Macron. And further unnerved by French friends who have been telling me with no small amount of panic in their voices that they think there's a non-trivial chance she could win. I heard the same from a French journalist a couple of days ago. The polling drop for Macron has been significant. I think she said it drops a point a day. So very worrying. So Damon Linker, you wrote a column saying that, uh, you know, the message of the Orban victory is that these kinds of people, as distasteful as they are, can win by just being popular. I'm going to push back on that a little bit because I think it's really not a good comparison to say that he's just popular considering how thoroughly he has gerrymandered the system, how thoroughly he controls the information space and how much he has dominated the judiciary. So here's my question to you. Do you think this was an election that we need to be worried about because it proves his popularity or no? I do think that we have to worry about that for the same reason that we should be worried about the French election and our own election coming up in especially 2024, whether or not it's Donald Trump or a a Trump wannabe on the ticket for the Republicans. I mean, I I don't want to take too strong of a stance that like, oh, everything in Hungary is fine. Uh, It certainly isn't. And it is certainly true that Orban has done a lot of things to try to rig the system in his favor 
although I would put it more in terms of thumbs on scale, which aren't good, but they don't really come into play unless there's an awful lot of popular support out there already for him. It's the kind of thing, the analogy to our country would be, well, you know, Trump can win in the electoral college while losing in the popular vote, but of course he can only do that if the popular vote isn't hugely separated. Uh, He has to at least be within striking distance for that to come into play, for those counter-majoritarian institutions to kick in and him to prevail in the end. So, I mean, what I do think the Orban victory we should treat as a very serious worry and warning for us in the democratic West is that we see it there, we see it in France, we see it here, we saw it to an extent in the UK elections a couple of years ago. What we're seeing throughout all of these countries is an alliance of small town and rural voters against urban progressives. And the progressives I use in a broad sense, it doesn't necessarily mean like leftists. It can mean someone like Macron, who's a center figure, a kind of neoliberal centrist, that there is a new alliance partly made possible by social media that helps people who live in kind of far-flung towns and regions to kind of come together in political solidarity and form a political faction in James Madison's sense in a way that the distance and lack of density of the population would have precluded in the past. And so there's a kind of traction that a right-wing populist message can get in our political systems that it didn't used to be capable of doing. And I think what we're seeing over and over again is the potency of that kind of an alliance of parties against the center. And yes, Orban has certain things to kind of rig it in his favor, but it's also true if you go back to the 2010 election when he and his party, the Fidesz party, first gained power before, obviously, he was in any position to rig anything, the alignment was the same. He won most of the country other than the capital. And then Hungary is not a country with a lot of cities. It has Budapest and then lots and lots of towns and rural areas. And he was already doing that and already winning two-thirds majority in the parliament. So again, I don't want to downplay the rigging narrative, if you will, but I do want to kind of enhance the opposite side of that argument and say that liberals... Democrats throughout the West are making a mistake if they emphasize too much that this is people stealing power. They are doing some nefarious things around the edges to help make it more likely they will win power, but they are winning power in part through a message that is resonating and people in the center need to do a better job of coming up with a message that makes sure that stops happening if possible. Yeah, fair enough. Good good points. All right, Linda, I don't want to force you to go back to an uncomfortable place where you described on this podcast that you nearly had a stroke <laughs> watching uh, <laughs> watching Fox News, but I am going to invite you to comment on the fact that CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, is meeting guess where in May? Budapest. They also have held one in uh, Brazil. They are doing a uh, right-wing strongman tour. And of course, Tucker Carlson broadcast his show for an entire week from Hungary. The former editor of National Review, John O'Sullivan, is now a full-on Orbanist who uh, works for a think tank that is completely funded or almost entirely, I think, funded by the Orban government. And he's been inviting various right-wing types to come and enjoy the pleasures of the Orban regime. I think one of the things that no one yet has mentioned in terms of the Orban uh, victory was his victory speech in which he singled out two men uh, who he uh, basically said he defeated. One was, of course, George Soros, a Hungarian billionaire, Hungarian born, he's an American now, who happens to be Jewish. And the other was Volodymyr Zelensky, also who happens to be Jewish. The sort of, you know, anti-Semitism, and it's um, subtly done. It's not done the way the Germans did it during uh, the Nazi era. It's not even done the way the left has done it in terms of making Israel 
a proxy uh, for Nazis. But there is a strain of anti-Semitism that runs through this. And I think one of the things that attracts the American right to Hungary is this very aggressive pro-Christian ideology that Orban deals in. And it is worrisome. And I have to agree uh, with Damon that the victory does say something about the appeal of this illiberalism uh, to certain segments of the population. And of course, we see it here in the United States as well. You know, the idea of an illiberal democracy to some of us may sound like an oxymoron. That's explicitly what he calls it, by the way. That is Orban. Yeah, that's right. No, I know. And uh, it seems sort of strange, George, how can you have an illiberal democracy? Isn't democracy built on certain liberal principles? Uh, Well, it traditionally has been. But what he is showing is that democracy in the sense of holding elections, having certain democratic institutions, uh, namely elections, does not necessarily mean that you uphold all of the elements that I think are fundamental to democracy, including the protection of the rights of minorities and and other things, freedom of the press, a judiciary that's independent, etc. And so I think this is worrisome, and it is worrisome in terms of the United States and the whole way in which uh, this kind of Christian fundamentalism has taken hold within the Republican Party trying to, you know, basically say that Christianity is uh, the only acceptable religion in our society. And there are certainly segments uh, on the right that believe that. So I I think it's very worrisome. Bill Galston, I think you wanted to add something, and we will hear what that is after we take this brief break. People say puffiness and bags under the eyes are the hardest things to get rid of. Until now. Introducing GenuCell Plant Stem Cell Therapy. Some studies show that plant stem cell therapy can help target eye puffiness and bags. Due to new technology, GenuCell is an incredibly powerful natural serum. And with its instant effects, it's guaranteed to show results in as little as 12 hours or your money back. That's right, some users saw results in only 12 hours with dramatic improvement in two weeks. Look, I used to be skeptical about all of these things. What can a lotion do for you? But maybe I was kidding myself because I have been using this and I can say that when you put it on, the skin around your eyes does begin to feel a little firmer, a little bit better. It's a pleasant sensation and I'm really enjoying that eye cream, and I'm actually using a bunch of their products, and the eye cream is great. Now, GenuCell contains eight extra ingredients and uses plant stem cell technology to help get longer lasting and brilliant results. Go to genucell.com slash beg to differ right now and try risk-free. You can say goodbye to puffiness and bags today. Order right now with our special code beg to differ and get an instant 10% off your order. GenuCell promises the best skincare, best results, or your money back. Go to genucell.com slash bulwark, genucell.com slash bulwark. Bill, did you want to make another comment? First of all, speaking as a not quite defrocked political theorist, the unification of liberalism and democracy represents a modification of the classic Greek notion of democracy, which did not create any limits on the power of majorities. And it is not incoherent to speak of an illiberal democracy. It's very undesirable, particularly in contemporary situations. But it's not as though Orban is contradicting himself. He is taking a different turn and making it real. Secondly, I just wanted to add a word about the French elections. I absolutely agree that there's cause for worry. If you look at the way things were 10 years ago, uh, the, the French scene was dominated by the socialists on the one hand and the heirs to the Gaullist tradition on the other. Today, the 
Socialist Party of France plus the Gaullist Party of France put together are getting 10.5% of the vote. If you add up the far left and the far right, it's more than 50%. So this is a really big deal in France. And we could have uh, another Brexit shock followed by another Trump-style shock in France. And what would that say about the uh, NATO unity vis-a-vis the threat from Russia? I mean, Marine Le Pen is a direct beneficiary of support from Putin. That is true. On the other hand, she's among the many leaders, Eric listed, who have backed off, in her case, backed way off. Yeah. Right. She understands the political consequences of emphasizing an alignment with Russia under these circumstances. All right. Well, thank you all for that. And we will turn in a minute to our final segment. If you're looking to add to your budget or fund a large expense, it may be worth looking at your house. It's true. Mortgage rates are still very competitive and home values are on the rise, making it a great time for a cash-out refinance. Just be sure to call our friends at American Financing, America's home for home loans, because they offer custom loans that can achieve your goals faster. After all, there's more to a refinance than just a lower rate. You can also access cash for the things you need, like improving your home, paying for college, or even getting rid of debt faster. All are possibilities when you choose American Financing. So why not get a free mortgage review to learn more? If you start soon, you could close in as fast as 10 days and may skip two payments. Call 888-961-4143. That's 888-961-4143. Or visit AmericanFinancing.net. NMLS 182334. NMLS all right, we now turn to our highlight or lowlight of the week, Bill Galston. My highlight of the week occurred yesterday when three Democratic senators and three Republican senators got together on the floor during the debate over Katanji Brown Jackson to read portions of Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. All right, fantastic. Next, we turn to Eric Edelman. Well, I have both a highlight and a low light. I'll start with my low light because it's sort of the flip side of Bill's highlight, which was after Senator Romney announced his support for Tenji Brown Jackson, Marjorie Taylor Greene came out and accused him as well as Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins of being pro-pedophile. And this just tells you a lot about where the House Republicans are these days, sadly. The highlight was Volodymyr Zelensky's appearance remotely to the UN Security Council. And it's in keeping with his other appearances. And as someone who both admires enormously Winston Churchill and Ronald Reagan, I find Zelensky's video speeches to a variety of parliaments around the world and now the United Nations truly inspiring uh, in both the Churchillian and Reaganite you know, senses. They haven't been perfect. They haven't been without some off notes, including his uh, appearance before the Knesset. But by and large, they have combined kind of the resolution of Churchill and Reagan's ability to rise to the moment and play a leadership role that he learned as an actor. And, and I think Zelensky did as well. Yes, As I've mentioned before, Ronald Reagan once mused about his career as an actor and wondered how anyone who had not had a career as an actor could be president (laughs) or leader. So um, for some people, it really does come in handy. But of course, as you're saying, it's also a matter of his spirit and soul and intellect and all those things coming together. And it is a, I agree, completely inspiring which is a word I haven't had occasion to use in a very long time about a public figure. Next, Linda Chavez. 
Uh, thanks, Mona. Uh, I don't think we've talked enough about uh, Victor Orban. So my highlight of the week is to recommend an article that appeared in American Purpose this week. Uh, it is written by Arch Puddington, who is uh, Emeritus Senior uh, Scholar at Freedom House. And it's entitled Orban's China Infatuation. Why is it the NatCon's champion of Christian values playing footsie with the long-term persecutors of religion? in the Chinese Communist Party. And we've talked a lot about uh, Orban's pro-Putin views, uh, but his cozying up to the Chinese and the Chinese Communist Party is in some ways even more surprising. He in many ways got his start in politics in Hungary by championing his anti-communist roots during the time that uh, the Soviet Union dominated Hungary. So it's well worth a read. And again, it's Orban's China infatuation. Okay, thank you. Damon Linker. Well, I'm going to buck trends and being a little upbeat uh, this, uh, in this episode <laughs> here at the end, um, you know, amidst all the gloom about Orban and, and Le Pen and France and so forth, uh, some encouraging developments this week. Uh, UN members have voted to suspend Russia from the body's uh, Human Rights Council. That was over the objection of China. Now, the Human Rights Council is, is often kind of the target of mockery by people because the chair of it frequently circulates to authoritarian dictatorships and so forth. So it's not any huge achievement to have done this, but in the current context of the war uh, and over China's objection, it's still a good statement that, uh, again, the world is not pleased by Russia's actions here, and it comes with some institutional consequences. And then uh, at the same time, uh, we also saw this week the Senate voted, the U.S. Senate voted unanimously to suspend normal trade relations with Moscow and to ban Russian gas and oil. So these are two signs that, you know, however much we may become disheartened rightly with uh, the behavior of a large faction of Republicans in the House. The Senate at least remains united and full of grownups on both sides, at least when uh, the really important issues come down for a vote. And uh, this was a good one. And so uh, bravo for uh, not only passing a resolution like that, but doing it unanimously 100 to zero. All right. Fantastic. So I want to praise a piece written by Josh Barrow on uh, Substack called uh, Very Serious. Uh, recommend it. And uh, he addressed himself to the topic of who pays taxes because Senator Rick Scott, the um, Republican uh, from Florida, has suggested that everybody needs to pay income taxes because they have to have skin in the game. And of course, you know, about the bottom half of the population, as everyone knows, or at least those who were paying attention to Mitt Romney's fate in 2012, pay no income taxes at all, and uh, the rest is distributed among the upper earners. But as Barrow points out in this piece, both Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, are getting the tax burden wrong. Okay, So the Rick Scotts of the world and others who say that the lower income earners are paying no tax are ignoring the fact that actually people in those quintiles do pay tax. They just don't pay income taxes. They pay a lot of their taxes in state and local and uh, payroll taxes and other things that are filtered through and eventually come out in wages and so forth. So according to his chart, you know, even at the lowest quintile, the lowest 20% of earners still pay about one out of every $7 of their income in taxes. So they do have skin in the game. They pay. And then on the other side, it's frequently said by progressives that the tax code lets you know millionaires and billionaires get away with not paying anything and, and that it's terribly unjust in that sense. And of course, that's not true either. The tax code is steeply progressive. And then that is mostly because the income tax is very progressive. So If you look at the bottom quintile, those with, actually this is even divided up into sextiles, but anyway, those who are in the bottom, 
household incomes less than $26,000 a year pay about 15% of their income in taxes. And then again, as I said, mostly state and local governments and uh, sales taxes and so forth. But for people in the top 1%, they pay 36% of their income in taxes. And most of that is because of the progressivity of the federal income tax. So everybody is paying and both sides are wrong to suggest that the people they dislike are not paying. Obviously, there are instances where you can get around taxes through clever strategies. And Donald Trump is the greatest exemplar of of that. And that is unjust and that should be addressed. But those are more loopholes uh, rather than the progressivity of the tax code. So with that, I would like to thank Eric Edelman for joining us. And I want to thank our producer, Katie Cooper, and our sound engineer, Joe Armstrong. I want to thank our listeners and commenters, and we will return next week as every week. 